Amen. Amen. As was mentioned, uh, today is Family Sunday. So as I said last Family Sunday, children, you are not released. Uh, you're going to stay down here. And we have coloring books and things set up in the back for the kids to use and color to enjoy uh, themselves and, and take part in worship today. I will say that there's a bit of a, um, a bit of a nuance to today's message that I want to put out before I get started. And that today's message is going to include some, uh, not lewd, but mature themes related to sexuality and abuse. So if you don't want your children to hear that, we do have the nursery open upstairs. So if you want your kids to be uh, in worship, but just in a separate room where they won't hear some things that you think might be a little bit too mature for them, uh, please feel free at any point to take them upstairs uh, to the nursery where they can be still supervised or still in a safe space, but not uh, hearing the message if you don't feel it's appropriate for them. But like I said, not lewd, but just um, today is a mature message because the Bible tackles and, and talks about all things related to life and godliness, including those that are rather mature. And, you know, we live in a society where these things are the reality. So what better place to hear and discuss and talk about it than in the presence of God and his word. So just know that going in. Um, so children, Please uh, make your, yourself comfortable wherever you are, um, even if that is upstairs in the nursery. And before I get started, I do want to pray. Um, I'll pray just in general for our service, and I'll also pray for the kids. And one thing I like to try to think of, one thing just to add to the prayer time before we get into service, and that is some of you know we have uh, goals every year as a church. And those are related to new members, and baptisms. Every year we pray for a certain amount. Does anyone know what the amount is? We pray for new members and baptisms every year. Does anyone know what our goal is for 2023? Eddie? Five? Aunt Diane says five. It's like price is right. Who's going to go over first? <laughs> we still have space. Any, any other guesses? 20? One. I like that under promise over deliver because we've got two already so the goal is 20. so this year we are praying for 20 new members and 20 baptisms because we want to see um, in line with our core commitments um, people be added to the faith and also added to our number and identifying with us as a local church so join me in praying for that join me in praying for our service and join me in praying for the children lord we know that you are um in control, that you are good, that you are working and moving in ways that we can't know in this moment, and that you are at the same time strengthening us in ways that we desire and in ways that we need. Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we can accomplish the task that you have set us forth to multiply passionate love for Jesus and those made in his image, and to do so in particular by seeing new members added to our number and by seeing new believers baptized. God, we ask for your help to be effective evangelists with our friends, with our coworkers, with our family members, with those who are just in and around the church, who are coming around, who wanna know or hear about Jesus. Help us to be effective. Help us to be effective in encouraging and building a community where people want to be members of the body of Christ, where they want to identify with Jesus, where they want to see themselves in a family like you promised, Lord, that we would receive brothers and sisters in this life and in the age to come, Lord. 
So help us to build that community. Help us to build that family here at ECC and see people added to it, God. We thank you for um, those that have committed already this year, for Tom and Franny, for Jeff and Gina, and for the others, the Morellas, God. We ask for more, for more to be added to our number, for just like Acts, that, that we would see those added to our number daily, those who are being saved, and that we would testify and give you glory in the midst of all that, Father. Help us to see more baptisms. Help us to see more members. Help us to submit ourselves to the power of your spirit, to walk in it and to obey it. When you, we feel you calling us to have a conversation with someone about faith or about membership or to invite someone over and to invite them into community, help our communities to be effective agents of, of uh, fostering and, and coddling new believers to grow into maturity and help us to grow our numbers, God. Help us to do so with perseverance, to preach the word in and out of season, God, and to do so with joy to do so not because we have to, but because we get to, because we get to and can't help but testify that which has given us life, which is the life of Jesus. We thank you. We praise you for these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are in our second message of our question and answer series. And in the midst of this series, we are seeking to answer questions that you have about the Christian faith, that you have about the Bible, that you have about culture, society, anything. Uh, and if you have questions as we go through this, these, these sermons, please continue to give them to us, email us, talk to us, put them in the box. We have open slots for messages that we have yet to cover topics for. So we, we have more and we want more. So please submit those to us as we go through. Uh, today's message is gonna be about a question that I got during the Genesis series. And the person who asked this question does not know that I actually decided that it was so, such a good question that I wanted to do a sermon on it. And there were some other questions that came in that were related to it. And I'm not gonna say who asked this question, but while we were going through the Genesis series, I preached a message on Genesis 32 going into 33 that talked about Jacob and Esau. And some of us know that famous tale, right? Uh, Jacob wrestles with God and then reconciles with his brother Esau. And then the next week, we just picked right up in Genesis 37 and continued in the redemptive line of the patriarchs. So we talked about Jacob's son, Joseph. And during that message in Genesis 37, when the person found out that we were going from Genesis 34 to Genesis 37 to talk about Joseph, they turned to me and they said, so you're just going to skip over Dinah. Now, some of you might know the story of Dinah. The story of Dinah is Genesis 34. So I did 32 and 33, and then 34 gets right on Dinah. Now, if you flip to Genesis 34, the heading in your Bible might say something like the defiling of Dinah, or Dinah and the Shechemites, or even the rape of Dinah. Genesis 34 describes Dinah going through something that we might consider today to be abuse of the intimate variety. And then it talks about the violence that ensues between the two families because in the words of Dinah's brother, our sister was treated like a prostitute. It can be tempting when we read the Bible to skip over things like that and just focus on the, the nice flowery redemptive stuff that we all know and love that, that tells a familiar story that we all like. And in fairness to us, uh, while we were going through Genesis, we didn't do that. There was actually another tough text in Genesis, Genesis 38, between Judah and Tamar, and Pete preached a, a really good message on that. But there is a lot of that 
in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a difficult thing to read around and not just uh, Dinah and Judah and Tamar, but if you read the Old Testament, you'll see things like Lot's daughters, you'll see Bathsheba, you'll see concubines, you'll see women who are treated like property, who are traded like bargaining chips, who are given no voice. And I think the question that was in the back of the person's mind who asked me if we were skipping over Dinah, and really the question that it sparked in my mind was, what is the Lord wanting to communicate with all of this violence against women in the Old Testament? And when you have something like what happens to Dinah in Genesis 34, and then if you keep reading the Old Testament, you pick up Genesis 35, it just picks up continuing the, the, the redemptive line of the patriarch and talks about Jacob getting his name reaffirmed. And so at a macro level, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which was the, the general focus of our Old Testament uh, study of Genesis. Why then will we drop a story like Dinah in the middle of all that and just kind of move on as soon as the story's over? When we read something like that, how do you interpret it, right? Do you, do you sweep it under the rug and just say, okay, that, that was there and I guess we'll just keep going and continue on to the story of redemption and I think the way that we process that is significant. And it's something that we're still wrestling with to this day in practice. Some of you may have heard a story that broke a few years ago. In 2019, the Houston Chronicle ran an a, a investigative story about the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention, large, influential, we are not an SBC church, but we are very much connected to, and I'm sure a lot of the books in our bookstore are written by SBC pastors. We are connected to them in, in an indirect way. And the SBC has done incredible work. They've planted a lot of churches. They've baptized and not only believers. They are the largest denomination that is Protestant in the U.S. But in 2019, the story that was run on the SBC and the Houston Chronicle on the cover had a bunch of mugshots. And those were mugshots of men in the SBC who were accused of abuse the kind of abuse that was similar to what happened to Dinah. The Houston Chronicle uncovered 700 cases over 20 years within the denomination. And according to, the, the, um, according to Christianity Today, most of the people in those cases either took plea deals or were convicted. So pretty serious. And it's interesting that the SBC, you have this amazing legacy of church planting, of sending missionaries, of baptizing new believers, and right alongside it, you have a pattern of major serious sin. And I think you see that in the Old Testament. You have this amazing story of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then right alongside that, you have something like Genesis 34, serious major sin. And even if we observe that, that pattern and that similarity between the SBC and between the Old Testament, I think it's still fitting to take some time to dive into the question, what about Dinah? Should we just skip over it? Because our lives aren't Hollywood movies. We can't just skip over the, the hard things that happen to us and fast forward to the easy things that are uh, helpful to understand that are more redemptive in nature. Dinah was a real person with a real story, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the other characters that we like to focus on in the Old Testament. And if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob point us to Jesus, I think the mere fact that Dinah is in the Bible has to, in some way, do the same. Because Jesus said, just like we read in the beginning, the scriptures testify about him. Those Old Testament scriptures testify about him, even the ones that are difficult and uncomfortable to understand. 
And I think if we skip past the Dinahs, the Hagars, the Tamars, the Bathshebas, the maidservants, the women who are given in war, all the concubines, we might be glossing over something that Jesus wants us to wrestle with. And this is something that I think our culture is wrestling with too. As some of you might remember a few years ago, there was a Me Too movement where women who were in the workplace or in different fields of entertainment were sharing their stories of being mistreated. And I think if we read the Bible in context without skipping over the hard parts or the parts that are difficult or a little bit graphic, I think we'll be able to empathize with the woman who spoke out during the Me Too movement about being abused on her job or the person who struggles with their relationship uh, to this day to the church because they were abused as a child, or the person who just wonders why is there all this violence of the intimate variety in the Old Testament? And does God just turn a blind eye to all that and want us to really focus on the important things like the story of redemption? So tonight I'm gonna pose the question again that we ask, what about Dinah? We're gonna look at the text in Genesis 34, and then I'll just give us a few talking points to apply to our modern day. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 34, we're gonna go uh, verse by verse through the account. So Genesis 34, and I'm starting at verse one. Verse one says, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. We'll stop there. So for those of you who weren't here during the Jacob messages, Jacob is carrying on this covenant blessing that was given to his grandfather, Abraham. And you could say that his life is marked by favor from God. Jacob, in an interesting story that we could do a whole nother message on, I think we did do a whole nother message on, Jacob has two wives, one of whom he married by mistake. His first wife, whom he married by mistake, he was tricked into by his uncle Laban, and that first wife is named Leah. Leah bears Jacob six sons and one daughter, and the daughter is Dinah. So in this culture, Dinah has two strikes against her. Sorry, there we go. Dinah has two strikes against her. One, she's a daughter in a culture where sons are seen as more valuable and carrying on the family lineage. And two, in the family drama of Jacob, who married a woman by mistake, Dinah is the daughter of the woman whom he didn't want to marry. So when the passage says that Dinah went out to see the women of the land, it's setting her up to be in a vulnerable situation because she already has these two cultural strikes against her. But in the midst of that, she's leaving her family in a foreign land called Shechem. Now, Jacob should not be in Shechem, and I'll explain a little bit why about that later. But the picture here is almost like you have kids and you go on a camping trip. When you're on a camping trip, you're in a foreign land, somewhere you're not familiar with. Now, imagine if your youngest daughter wandered off the campsite without telling anybody and is out by herself. That's kind of the situation that Dinah is in here. She is a vulnerable person in unfamiliar territory, and unfortunately, she ends up in a worst case scenario. Verse two, when Shechem, Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. So Shechem sees this vulnerable woman and he takes advantage of the situation. Now, Shechem is a man who has his family who rules in the land, so there's some degree of power here, and he uses that power in ungodly ways. The passage says that he sees her, he saw her, and she has to, seems to have no say in what's happening here. It goes on to say, he lay with her, which means what you think it means. 
And then the key, he humiliated or he defiled her, some of your translations will say. Now that understanding of the word humiliated or defiled typically is, is translated one of two ways or understood one of two ways. The first is that they had intimacy without her consent. Some scholars take the lens that this was described as humiliating or defiling simply by the fact that they were intimate and Dinah was a member of the covenant people and Shechem was not. So it's just defilement by nature because you have a covenant person being intimate with a non-covenant person. But even if you take that understanding, there's no mention within this concept or within this story of Dinah consenting to this relationship and to this action. Remember, it says she went out to see the women of the land and she, gets in, she ends up getting assaulted by Shechem. And the way her family responds as we'll go on certainly doesn't seem to indicate, as some scholars would suggest, that this is like a hopeless romantic Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. If you read Song of Psalms, for example, which is another thing that maybe you should remove the kids from the room while you do, but if you read Song of Songs, the Bible does have this idea of uh, consensual, bi-directional affection between two adults, but that is not the case here. So I think it's fair to concede that Shechem sinned against Dinah. And it's important to note where the Bible lays responsibility in this matter. It says that he saw, he seized, he laid, he humiliated. So we could note that perhaps Dinah was unwise and she was in a vulnerable place for a young woman at the time. The Bible places responsibility for what happened on Shechem. Again, he saw, he seized, he laid, he humiliated. What we can learn here is that regardless of circumstance, we are always responsible for our behavior towards other people. There are no excuses made for Shechem's behavior. It doesn't say, you know, she was out there where she shouldn't have been and couldn't help himself. It doesn't say, you know, the way Dinah dressed, she really tempted Shechem and men are visual. So you know what happens in that scenario? It doesn't say, you know, Shechem was a young guy. He was going through puberty and couldn't hold back. Boys will be boys. Doesn't say any of that. None of that applies to Shechem. Shechem is purely and 100% at fault for his behavior. This is the same logic Jesus uses when he talks about lust. Jesus says that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. Notice the you and your, it's the consistent. It is you and your responsibility. One of our goals as a church is to challenge and train men to lead sacrificially. And I believe that a big need in our society today is for men to hold other men accountable for their behavior. If we had that, perhaps we wouldn't need a Me Too movement. No matter the circumstance, no matter the setting, no matter what she's wearing, according to the Bible, if you mistreat a woman, your sin will be attributed to you and to you alone. Keep that in mind when you hear people saying things like, well, you know, she was doing this or she was doing that, she was wearing this, she was wearing that, men are visual. Instead of accepting those excuses, remind yourself and remind the men around you that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? 
self-control. Men can be self-controlled, and women, and boys and girls. We can all be filled with the Spirit and act in self-control. Women being mistreated by men is 100% solvable if men act in self-control. Remember how the issue is framed. He saw, he seized, he laid, he humiliated. And sin has consequences, even after we try to make it right. So let's pick up in verse three. And his soul was drawn to, drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly, tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Again, there's no mention of how she feels about this interaction. Shechem jumps straight from having sex with this woman to wanting to marry her. And he asks his dad, get this girl for my wife. Now notice, she is his wife. This is not two co-equal parts coming together like Genesis talks about. This is a man who is burning with passion for a woman that he just met saying, I think I want to marry her. Which this goes back to this probably not being a consensual interaction. I remember back in January, I did a sermon on the purpose of marriage. And one of the things I stated in that, in that sermon was that a prerequisite for marriage biblically is one man and one woman. Jesus reaffirms that definition when he talks about marriage. But I remember saying in that sermon that one man and one woman is a foundational prerequisite for marriage, but it's not the only thing the Bible talks about when it envisions marriage. This would be one example of one man and one woman still falling short of the biblical precedent or the biblical picture for marriage because we have a man who is inflamed with passion, wanting to be with a woman simply for the cause of being intimate with her. And if we're Christians, we should be able to look at an interaction like this and see how that also falls short of the Bible standard for marriage. So we can understand and diagnose why same-sex marriage might be wrong or is wrong. But we should also look at the idea of a man who's wanting to marry a woman simply and only for his sexual fulfillment also being wrong. And while we might deal with those issues differently, we should be able to ask ourselves a simple question and ask those around us a simple question when it comes to marriage. Why? As a Christian, if you can have or unpack a Christian understanding of getting marriage, why do I want to get married? Why do I want to stay married? Why do I want my kids or my children or the people around me to be married? And if the answer is merely like Shechem, which is I see an attractive person and I want to be intimate with them, then we've fallen short of the biblical standard for marriage. So there is some merit to Shechem wanting to do right by Dinah, but it's still not the biblical idea, and there are consequences for that. Let's continue in verse 5. Oop. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, the sons of Jacob, had come in from the, seat, the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So now word is going around town about what happened. And there are two reactions here. First, we have Jacob who holds his peace, which seems passive, right? Granted the circumstance. Some of you are fathers or grandfathers or have goddaughters in here. And if you heard that this happened to one of your children, I'm not sure that I would hold my peace if I were in that scenario. 
maybe you'd respond differently. And this could be going all the way back to the consequences of Jacob's sin, right? Because Dinah is the daughter of a wife to whom he didn't want to marry, and Jacob has multiple wives and concubines. But regardless, Jacob's sons are in the field, and he doesn't tell them, which I think turns out to be really consequential. Jacob's sons, though, have a different response than their father. I think in somewhat of a redemptive way, but also in a very sinful way, as we'll read. But Jacob's sons have a different response than their father. This is their sister. How could this thing happen amongst our people? God's covenant people, we're supposed to operate differently. It, it, we understand that if this is how the pagan nations operate, where they see vulnerable women and they take advantage of them, but we're God's people and this is our sister. And they're not satisfied, they're not happy, which is very understandable. Now, Hamor, who is Shechem's dad, sees this storm brewing and tries to get out in front of it, which we will see when we pick up here in verse 8. It says, Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So notice, Hamor's plea is not just for his son to marry Dinah. Now it's become this power move. It says, make marriages, plural. Make marriages with us, and we'll all be one big family, and you can settle down here in Shechem. Now, this is problematic because, like I said, I would address this. Jacob is not supposed to be in Shechem. He reconciles with his brother Esau, and he says, hey, let's go back to the promised land. And Jacob also just wrestled with God. He's probably still got a limp at this point, so he's behind his brother, and then he goes back to being uh, the deceiver, and for whatever reason, he's following him and then just makes this detour and does not go back to the promised land. He settles down in this place called Shechem. So Jacob isn't supposed to be there in the first place, and now the temptation is to make things even worse by settling down and building a family and making a, a land, out, essentially, outside of where God directed him. It only gets, they only add more to it, because now Shechem... The son adds his proposal to the deal. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So Shechem, I think, knows he's wrong because he says, I need to find favor in your eyes in the eyes of Jacob and Dinah's brothers. So he proposes this idea of a bride price, which is again, I think, another sign that we've drifted from the biblical idea of marriage, where you have two co-equal parts consensually coming together as one. In this case, he essentially sees Dinah as property. Give her to be my wife. And now here come Jacob's sons with their side or their take on the proposal. And this is where, again, sin has consequences. Jacob was a deceiver, and you see his sons embody the behavior of their father, the deceiver. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a great disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and be one people. 
But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So Jacob's sons are plotting. They are putting on this religious veil. They are using the Lord's name in vain to carry out their own selfish plot. So they're saying, look, we want to do this. But, you know, we're God's people. We can't be amongst people who aren't circumcised. It's part of our religious tradition. This is probably how they're talking. This is my interpolation. They're, you know, void, you're, when, you're, when you're deceiving someone, your voice just goes up a half octave. You know, we just, we can't do this. We gotta, you gotta be, you gotta just come along and, and be spiritual with us. Honor the Lord. Just, just go through this simple religious practice. They're, they're, and they're setting them up. They're, they're probably laying it on like, you know, we're God's people. We understand you want to do right by our sister. And they're, they're setting them up to be deceived. Now notice there's, again, a difference in the agreement here. It's daughters, plural. So if you go through this religious cer uh, ceremony, we'll take your daughters, plural. It's, it's expanded now. Not we'll take our daughter or we'll take our sister, Dinah, back. Now it's like we're negotiating, like we're trading in the off-season of the NBA. We're, we're sending people back and forth between camps. Which again begs the question, what about Dinah? Because the person who was actually assaulted, the person who was sinned against, is now way at the bottom of this bargaining negotiation between these two sinful people. And again, if your parents here and you heard that this happened to your daughter or someone in your family or someone that you love, your foster and only question might be, where is my daughter? I need to get her out of here. But not so with Jacob's sons. They are setting up this false proposal and what we'll see is a plot for them to get revenge. Which is why I think going back to verse five, there were consequences to Jacob holding his peace. Because when he heard what happened to his daughter, he could have been the one with a little bit of godly wisdom to respond and out of respect for their father, it's possible that the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, could have followed along with whatever Jacob proposed. But he holds his peace. He hears what happened and the consequences get even worse in the response that we get from his sons. And what I want us to consider is that there are consequences when godly people with godly wisdom do not speak in to situations of injustice, whether it's abuse, whether it's mistreatment, whether it's violence, when people who have godly wisdom do not speak into those situations, they will eventually be addressed because people are made in God's image and we have this inherent quality in us, even though it's distorted by sin, we still have this inherent desire for justice and for people to be treated right. That's why you see Me Too movements and protests and people crying out for human rights in ways that are oftentimes sinful, but there is an Imago Dei, image of God, part of that because all of us wanna see people treated right. But the risk that we run when godly people with godly wisdom don't speak into those scenarios and situations is that people who are motivated by anger, by revenge, by deceit, can take legitimate wrongs, like what happened to Dinah, and turn it into their plot for revenge, which is what we'll see with Jacob's sons. So just keep in mind as I read on here, starting at verse 18, that what you're gonna see happen and unfold could have possibly been prevented if one person with godly wisdom spoke into the situation and didn't hold his peace. But Jacob decided to hold his peace. And so now we pick up in verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. 
And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in their land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of the city. So first notice again, Shechem, I like how it's, he's, he, he delighted in her, so he followed through with her quest. He did the thing, which is very painful in that day because there's no modern medicine, so use your imagination. But now he goes back to the people of his land and he tells them all, like, do the same. We're all going to follow along. And it's not just, notice, it's not just, you know, there's women, there's land, there's livestock. Like we're going to be living the good life. If we just follow through with this simple religious request, we will be living good. Which side note, that is a very interesting metaphor for false religion. I do this one thing and I'll be living good. God will be pleased with me. I'll get land. I'll get livestock. I'll get women. It'll be great. And all they get is a lot of pain. That is a metaphor for the false religions that say, just, just this one thing, and you get all of it. And then it comes back. If you don't get death, it's like, all right, one more, one more, one more. Just this one more thing. One more seed, one more this, one more that. And you never get the joy or the thing that you were promised. It promises more and more. It requires more and more and delivers less and less. Again, the scope is expanded. Now it's wives livestock, land, like we're going to be living the good life. But again, no mention of Dinah. And here's where the revenge plot comes full circle. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons, Jacob, Simeon, and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it fell secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem, and with the sword took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So Simeon and Levi, who, you know, just, just got to be circumcised. This is our thing, you know, and we'll, we'll make this work. All the while, they've got the sword ready to go. Three days later, everyone's still sore. They come in and sweep everybody away. People were in pain. They were vulnerable. And notice how this is not about justice. This is about revenge. Because they do take Dinah out, but they also take out a lot of other things that had nothing to do with what happened to Dinah. A lot of men, a lot of children, a lot of other people who had nothing to do with the situation. You see that in verse 27, it goes on and says, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. So the sons of Jacob took vengeance. This was not justice, including women. So you took our one sister, and now we're going to take all wealth, all your women, we're going to plunder and take it all. 
And I love this, <laughs> not in a, uh, a good way, but in a just ironic way, is the person who held his peace and has been oddly quiet this whole time. Now, verse 30, Jacob clears his throat and, and finds his voice and now finally has the courage to speak up. But it's about himself. He's like, you guys, this is going to come back to me. So verse 30, Jacob finally, who's found his voice and all of a sudden has the courage to speak up, says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So Jacob finally, like I said, maybe he had a bug in his throat and just held his peace because his throat was dry but he finally finds the courage to speak up about himself because he's worried about now having a bad reputation. And like I said, Simeon and Levi found the courage to do something in anger that was very sinful. They took matters into their own hands and the result was more women taken captive, people dead and an entire city plundered. And after all this drama between two families and violence, you flip over to Genesis 35 and it goes right back to God blessing Jacob and renaming him and sending him on his way to the promised land. So some, some application. What about Dinah? We don't hear from her again until Genesis 46. It's really not even talking about her. It's just a description of the children of Israel going into Egypt. And she's described as having no children and just mentioned in a list of names. And she's never mentioned again in scripture. Does that mean that God passively accepts what happened to her? Like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to describe this, but then we're just going to move on because we need to talk about redemption and, and the promise of the patriarchs and all the other important things. The reason I mention that question, which is a bit rhetorical, but the reason I say it is because whether it's the Me Too movement or the SBC or Dinah, there are real people with real stories of abuse whose lives have been wrecked. And they want to know, does God turn a blind eye to what happened to me? Is it just a, a, a flicker on the radar, but the real important things like church planting and missions and evangelism, or in the Old Testament, the, the redemptive line of the patriarchs, are those the main things that God cares about? In order to have that conversation, I want to just land six points as we close. First is that what we see described in Genesis 34 was not that way from the beginning. Even though it is in the book of Genesis, sometimes Genesis gets painted as an ideal picture of what people should be like. But we're in Genesis 34, not Genesis 2. The initial description of marriage implies agency on behalf of the man and the woman. It implies and emphasizes that they are both made in God's image. Jesus reaffirms that definition when he talks about marriage in Matthew. And actually, if you go even further and, and just flip ahead to the New Testament, you'll see the idea of Paul saying, husbands should love their wives like someone loves their own body. And you treat your body well and you do things to it in response to the, its needs. So any idea that men own women, that men can just with total uh, carte blanche act on behalf of what they want and take no regard for what a woman wants or thinks is not the Bible's ideal which is something we should keep in mind when we talk about the biblical definition of marriage. Everything that you see described in the Bible as marriage is not what the Bible is prescribing, which is the second point. The Old Testament especially is oftentimes descriptive, not prescriptive. 
when the Bible describes something, it's not necessarily saying whether or not that is a morally good thing. This is uh, something I just was thinking about recently. Rachel and I got the opportunity a few weeks ago to go to the African-American Heritage and History Museum in Washington, D.C. It was amazing. And it starts from the bottom, having uh, lots of uh, displays and, and depictions and real-life artifacts of what happened when Africans were brought as enslaved people here into America. And you can see everything from pictures of slave ships to actual shackles that were around people's wrists and around their legs. And I, well, I was, as I was going through it, I was realizing the importance of telling the history of something like that accurately. So you can realize the humanity and the sin of what happened and you can see it accurately with your own eyes. And I was appreciative of the fact that they were telling the story and retelling history, history accurately. And at the same time, when we left that museum, no one left thinking, you know, slavery is a pretty good thing. That's what parts of the Old Testament are like. They are described in very clear detail in order to show us what not to do. Like Shechem's marriage to Dinah. It's like an artifact in a museum that's saying, hey, this happened. This is here for you to look at in its accuracy, but this is an example of why you should not do this. If you look, especially uh, throughout the Old Testament, the way to find out, because there's differences, like I said, something is prescriptive and something is descriptive. This, is, this was a descriptive account, and I would argue the, way it's, the, the reason it's described with such detail is to remind us of what not to do. The way to diagnose whether or not something is descriptive or prescriptive, point three, consequences. Look at the consequences of what happens. Remember, there's no Mosaic law at this point. There's no sacrificial system. There's no clearly spelled out definitions of sin. So if you want to find out, especially in some of the um, earlier parts of the Old Testament, whether or not something is sin or whether or not it's morally good, examine the consequences. And this is manifold. This is not just Shechem. Jacob, as we observed, has two wives and two concubines. And you can see the consequences of his actions are continuing to play out. He has a daughter, perhaps, who he doesn't actually like that much, who gets taken advantage of. He has sons who take revenge because they love her and he doesn't, and he doesn't speak up for her. And that leads to more people being slaughtered. There are consequences for the actions that he took. Shechem's actions, Shechem's actions have consequences. He sees a vulnerable young woman out and decides to take advantage of her. And it cost him and everyone in his village their lives. Now, Simeon and Levi are not right for retaliating. But we do see in this passage, there's a clear picture of sowing and reaping. Shechem is violent towards Zina. He sows violence. He reaps violence. Simeon and Levi are violent towards the Shechemites. And like I said, the consequences to them, their retaliation isn't right. But if you read in the Old Testament, they eventually have to flee as well. So while the consequences aren't always exactly the same, I think they're there to remind us how to diagnose what is right and what is wrong. And it's important to remember when you see Jacob and his sons, because it seems like, you know, Simeon and Levi get the easy one, like, oh, well, they got to flee, but they killed a bunch of people, but Shechem lost his life. So it seems like they're not necessarily equal. But just remember that even as the consequences don't seem equal when they're given out in the Old Testament, point four, the Lord sees everything and he doesn't miss anything. So like I said, it might seem like if you read the initial passage that Simeon and Levi and Jacob's family get off easy, 
if you read on Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing all his sons, recounting his blessing towards them. And he gets to Simeon and Levi and even Jacob in his broken, sinful fallenness remembers the sin of what they did to the Shechemites. And that I think is just a reminder at a point, if Jacob in his sinfulness, in his own brokenness can remember the sin that his sons committed against somebody, how much more so a holy, perfect God remembers the things that we did that we think we get away with. So just keep that in mind. The Lord sees everything and everyone will have to give an account, even when it seems like people got away with light consequences. Biblically, broadly speaking, that is not the case. The Lord sees all and we will all have to give an account for our actions. Point five to consider is that even when it appears that God's moral will is unclear and the consequences aren't even, the message of God's moral will becomes clear as the story unfolds. As I mentioned, at this time in Genesis, there's no clear law defining sin. When you read stories like this, it might think, well, is God really okay with this? You can read ahead and you can see that there are consequences for people's actions, but then there are laws laid down in Leviticus. If you look at the way Jesus treats people, if you look at the way the New Testament addresses issues like in Ephesians, you can see that there is clear morality that is laid out more clear as the, as the story goes on. One, for example, is uh, polygamy, right? Jacob has two wives, two concubines. In this whole exchange that was going to happen, the proposal was we're gonna make multiple marriages. And so some people take that as, well, does the Bible uh, uh, prescribe or even uh, allow for polygamy? And the complicated answer to that is no, but you don't get that explicitly until the New Testament in Timothy. When Timothy's talking about the requirements for elders, this is the ideal picture of a mature Christian and it is a one woman man. That's the first time that's explicitly mentioned until you could argue Genesis back in Genesis two, where it's one man and one woman. But between them, there's a lot of polygamy, there's a lot of concubines, and almost always there are consequences. And so when you look at the explicit prescription in the New Testament, you get a clear picture of what God's moral will is. So when you have a complicated issue like polygamy, you can see the accounts in the Old Testament, but then look at the whole picture, how it's treated consistently throughout scripture. That's called doing systematic theology. And then you can develop a picture of how God might or might not feel about something and the moral clarity of it. But I wanna go back to the question we've talked about because I don't wanna get lost in just the semantics of what might or might not be sin. What about Dinah? And I wanna answer that question with a final point. Point number six, Jesus makes everyone clean. Dinah was not alive for Jesus's earthly ministry, but if she was, I could see her falling in line with a lot of the women that Jesus encountered like the woman at the well, or the woman who was caught in adultery, or the woman who washed Jesus' feet, or Mary and Martha. Because if you read the Old Testament, the overarching theme you might take away is, wow, why are women always mistreated so poorly? But if you read the life of Jesus, especially if you were alive during his time and saw his life, the question you would be asking yourself is why does he treat women so well? In the way that he includes them, the way that he respects them, the way that he shows honor to them was radically countercultural for his time. And even for our time, I would argue. Genesis 34 is a manual on how not to treat women. The phrase toxic masculinity is thrown around a lot today. 
there's a lot of toxic masculinity in Genesis 34, if we want to use that term. We have Shechem who assaults a vulnerable woman. You have Jacob who fails to speak up for his daughter when she was sinned against. And then you have Simeon and Levi who take vengeance and anger and uh, capture and take more women and kill a lot of people. And over and over in his ministry, Jesus gives us a better example. Instead of taking advantage of a vulnerable woman like Shechem did, in John 4, Jesus sees a vulnerable woman out by herself, the woman at the well. And he reveals to this woman that he's the Messiah. Jesus has the opportunity to hold his peace like Jacob did. But when he was in the midst of a woman who was about to be unfairly stoned, he didn't hold his peace. He spoke up for her. He gave the famous line, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. And instead of seeking vengeance against his enemies like Simeon and Levi, Jesus gives true justice to his enemies by laying his life down for them on the cross. If the question ever comes up, does God not care about abuse? The answer has to start at the cross because every sin of abuse, every sin that we think people got away with was dealt with on the cross. And that the one person who didn't deserve to be punished was punished for all the sins that were committed against people unfairly. And unlike Simeon and Levi, Jesus could have rightfully slaughtered his enemies but he chose to lay his life down for them. Jesus had the power, he had the moral authority to do what Simeon and Levi actually did. But Jesus had that power and he had that moral authority because unlike Simeon and Levi, Jesus lived a sinless life. And because of this, Jesus can transfer something of value to us. Simeon and Levi made the empty promise of land and livestock and women, that false religion promise. But Jesus can actually give us a righteousness that makes us rightful heirs of all of the promises that belong rightfully to God's people. We can all be part of Jesus's family, and that is good news. If we turn from our sin, Jesus, is, Jesus offers us first and foremost a righteousness that is not our own. Jesus also restores the worth that the sin of a broken and fallen world can rob from us. So when we ask the question, what about Dinah? What about all those in the Old Testament and in modern day who are mistreated, who are forgotten, who are abused? Jesus' answer to them is that they can be part of the family. Whatever abuse that anyone suffered does not have to define them because Jesus suffered the ultimate abuse. He was punished for sins that he did not commit. And the, the thing that I hear ring in the back of my mind over and over, anytime I hear someone recount a story of what, it likes, what it's like for them to live life after being abused is something like, I feel dirty. I feel like I can't get this off of me. I feel like this will define me for the rest of my life. And the cross is a picture of that. Jesus was cursed. He took that dirtiness, that grossness, that uncleanness on himself. But the good news is that he didn't just take that. He also resurrected. And so for anyone who suffered abuse, who's been mistreated, especially in situations where there might not be justice in this life for the perpetrator. Jesus offers not just the ability to endure and forgive, but also the power of the resurrection and the ability to identify not with the sin that happened to us, but with the resurrection hope that is coming. And so for anyone who's been abused, who's been mistreated, Jesus says, you can be part of the family. You don't have to identify or be defined by the sin that happened to you. You can identify with the hope of the resurrection. And that's good news for Dinah. That's good news for me. That's good news for all of us.
So as we close, I would just encourage you, when you see these difficult, complicated, graphic depictions of what happens to people in scripture, don't rush past it. Look into it, read into it, see what you can learn. And remember that Jesus makes us all clean. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the depth of the redemption that you bought for us. We thank you that you've given your life in order to make us clean, that we don't have to identify with the sin that was done to us, the sin that we've committed, but also the sin that others have sinned against us. We can be free. God, help us to choose freedom, to choose forgiveness, first and foremost, to be forgiven for our own sins, but also forgiveness for those that have sinned against us. To, as so far as it's possible, seek justice for those who have been mistreated, but also to root our ultimate hope in the resurrection and that every wrong will be made right, that we will live in a world where there is no abuse, there is no mistreatment, there is no, uh, there is no more people being taken advantage of. There is loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. We long for that, God. We ask for you to come quickly to restore the order that was there from the beginning, to allow us to walk with you in the garden, in the cool of the day as we were created. Help us to seek that as much as we can here, but also to look forward with redemption, with hope for what Jesus will bring. We pray that he would come quickly. We ask these things in his name. Amen.